You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. In cities and suburbs, all over the world, there are those who find life a little confusing. Who find the things that people say. Be a creep! The things they do. And the stuff that just happens. Quite bewildering. But sometimes those who find the world impossible find each other. Dear Max, I am eight years old. It would be great if you could be my friend. Dear Mary, thank you for the letter. I find the world very chaotic. (laughs) Because my mind is very literal and logical. Where do babies come from in America? In Australia, they are found in beer glasses. Here is a drawing of me. Babies are laid by Catholic nuns. If you're an atheist, they're laid by dirty, lonely prostitutes. My mother likes smoking and sharing. My father left my mother when I was sick. She shot herself with my uncle's Can you explain love? Have you got a girlfriend, Max? kisses me without my permission. I know love upsets you, so I won't go on about it. All I want to say is that love is obviously not for me. Dear Mary, you are my best friend. You are my only friend. Mary and Max. P.S. Do you know that turtles can breathe through their anuses. Ooh. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Morris Bershtinsky. Geigesenterheit. On this episode, we're looking at the 2009 film from director Adam Elliott, Mary and Max. It's the story of two unlikely pen pals, Mary Daisy Dinkle, voiced both by Bethany Whitmore and Tony Collette, and Max Jerry Horowitz, voiced by Philip Seymour Hoffman. A lone little little girl from Australia and a middle-aged man with Asperger's Syndrome in New York City. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen the film, please stop the podcast and come back after you have. You won't regret it. So, Morris, when was the first time you saw Mary and Max, and what did you think? I saw Mary and Max on the opening weekend back in 2009, and as well as being a great film to me, it was special for a couple of very important reasons. Like everyone else, I I was really excited to see what Adam Elliott would do after Harvey Crumpet, which, you know, he became like the local 
town hero as it was. You know, he'd won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short up against Disney, which no one expected. There was a lot of buzz about this film, and I was just absolutely beside myself, really wanting to go see this. And I took my son, Max, and my father. And the couple of reasons why this is important to me was Max said after watching this that animation was what he wanted to do with his life. He was so struck by the storytelling, by the visuals of the film, just everything absolutely spoke to him. And he was no stranger to animation because he'd seen uh, a lot of Ray Harryhausen before then. He would have been... How old? Uh, about 10 or 11 years old at the time. And I was warned at the box office, you know that this is not a children's film. And I said, yeah, but he's, he's mature enough to be able to take this. Although we'll get into it later. There was one moment where I wanted to take him out of the cinema. I was like, oh no, I don't, this is probably going somewhere. I don't want it to go, but that's another story. Um, so yeah, it was important to me because that's what Max said he wanted to do with his life. He is now at university studying animation. And the other reason why it's very important to me is, was this, I think was the last film I got to see with my father in the cinema. So I'm very emotional about that occasion and uh, about the film itself. The film really hits me like few others emotionally, but it's also to me incredibly smart. Uh, the way how most dialogue is placed via uh, letter correspondences or narration could have worn thin, but I think Adam Elliott has paced things so beautifully. In fact, in a way, it almost plays out like a great novel, the way how the dialogue goes, or rather the narration, as we hear from them writing their letters and we hear from Barry Humphreys doing the uh, the soundtrack narration as it is. And yeah, I just think in lesser hands, it could have fallen apart, but Adam Elliott has had plenty of opportunity before through Harvey Crumpet, through his five-minute short films, which we'll talk a little bit about as well, I'm sure, in how to tell a story. I think he's absolutely brilliant. And so this film just spoke to me on every level, emotionally and intellectually. Really loved it. I really lucked into this one. I think that this was on Netflix or something. I was over at a friend's house, my friend Jonathan, and it was just like me and my wife and he and his, at the time, I think girlfriend, now his wife. And we were just hanging out, doing what we normally do, you know, just bullshitting that kind of stuff. And he's like, I saw this great movie and it was so good that he wanted to share it with me. And he usually trusts me on movies. I usually trust him on movies. And so we went from kind of hanging out, having dinner talking about things to watching this film. And it was just such a nice memory of just hanging out with friends, watching a movie. And it was so completely unexpected because I had never seen anything like this. I hadn't seen Harvey Crumpet. I hadn't seen any of Elliot's other work and was just blown away. I couldn't believe either that this was philip seymour hoffman doing the voice of max this does not sound like philip seymour hoffman i know that he can do different types of voices but usually they sound very philip seymour hoffman-esque and <laughs> when his name came up at the end of the movie i was just like what the hell i thought that it was some sort of like 60 year old man um you know like some sort of character actor or somebody that i would recognize like i, I thought 
you know, it wasn't an Ernest Borgnine, but it was like an Ernest Borgnine type guy doing this voice. But, but I was like, wow, Philip Seymour Hoffman doing this. Okay. And yeah, the animation style, everything about it just was wonderful. The use of the black and white world for Max and the kind of brown and sepia tones for Mary, the way that the two characters never really meet, but that they interact. It was, yeah, everything about it just hit me so well. And especially the use of the music. I love the use of music in here. There were a couple pieces written for the film, but the thing that always gets me is Mary's theme and that that wasn't written for the film. It's just like, wow, what a great piece of music. And it fits with her world so perfectly. The music was written by a fellow called Dale Cornelius. And I think like his original score for the film is really quite wonderful in its way. But yeah, it is the use of the Penguin Cafe Orchestra music really anchors the film in so many ways. Now, Peng- this is not actually the first time that Penguin Cafe Orchestra music has been used in an Australian film. There's a wonderful film. I'd urge you and any of the listeners out there who maybe haven't heard of it, came out in 1986. It's a film called Malcolm, a couple who directed it, Nadia Tess, and I'm forgetting her husband's name, but um, my bad. But anyway, uh, Malcolm and the Big Steel were a couple of really, really brilliant films that they made that are absolutely beloved. And the main theme in Malcolm was also by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. In fact, I think there's a lot of Penguin Cafe Orchestra music in that film. I think it was Rubber Band, something Rubber Band. And Malcolm was also, funnily enough, another film focusing on a socially awkward character. So maybe there's something about Penguin Cafe Orchestra music that lends itself well to that sort of character. I think so in, in this film, as you say, their music, Perpetuum Mobile, that is perfect for Mary, I think, in describing her and her situation because we got on the one hand like on the right hand of the piano it's playing the same motif over and over and over again and that says to me a lot about what her life is like in the suburb of Mount Waverley in Melbourne she wakes up every every day the color palette that we see in her world is all brown her life is brown and it's very dull but basically her life is every day the same thing, living with parents who don't really have a vested interest in her. She has a miserable school life. She has no friends. Uh, she finds comfort in eating sweetened condensed milk. Her life is just basically the same thing over and over every day. But it, the music, as well as being repetitive, but it's also hopeful. And every time something hopeful happens in the film, we come back to Mary's theme. There's also this other theme, which I can't remember if that was written by, I think it might have actually been one of the Dale Cornelius original composed theme, which he wrote for Max. And that's sort of a lot more melancholy. And I think that really reflects Max's world. He doesn't really see any joy in his life. He has no friends. Uh, he doesn't like the environment that he lives in, but each so each piece that's assigned the two main characters, it works absolutely perfectly. I mean, I know that that's the role of a composer's lot in composing music for a film, but I think they absolutely got it spot on. There's a third piece I want to discuss, but I'll leave that till we get to that part of the movie. That's uh, maybe towards the end of the film and the use of another song. 
the movie is animated and told in such a clever way that I didn't even realize that we don't have lip flap through this, that we're not trying to match up somebody's spoken words with their mouths. I mean, we get a lot of mouth movement. We get a lot, especially when it comes to Max, when he eats his chocolate hot dogs, but it doesn't necessarily line up with his speaking. And like you're saying, you've got Barry Humphreys as this narrator. You've got the voiceovers from our Marys, Mary as the young girl, Mary as the older woman. And then we've got Philip Seymour Hoffman as Max uh, throughout. And so much of the story is being told through the letters that they are writing. It's so well done that I don't even realize that I'm not seeing these characters speak. These characters are so well fleshed out that I just, I, I am so immersed in their worlds as I'm watching this. And they're not pleasant worlds, to your point. They're not very pleasant, but I like these characters, but the worlds that they live in, and especially Mary with her dad, who doesn't really seem to care about her very much, her mom, who is just off her rocker, uh, soused on Sherry all the time. I love the way that she's animated, the way that she just kind of wobbles around with the way that the Sherry makes her tipsy all the time. I mean, just all of this stuff adding up together, it's just such a, a well-crafted tale. I come back to what I said like a few minutes ago about how brilliant Adam Elliott is in that he could make us so invested in these characters without actually ever seeing them utter that much dialogue in the now. It's always voiceovers, the whole film is well about 95% of the dialogue is voiceover and how many films have been able to achieve that and still have you invested in the characters but um once again the clever use of music uh the these are characters that we think oh wow well i'm not a uh i'm not a new york aspergian or i'm not a little girl from glen waverley but these characters they do speak to us there are aspects about both of them which I do see in myself and everything that we see it's not just looking from afar looking at a distance it, it really you there's a lot about these characters that we can identify with and that is a large part of its success and it's to do with Adam Elliott's huge gift as a storyteller I mean if, if he'd never gone into animation and he just limited themselves to writing scripts, I still think that we would be completely involved in anything that he did. But I'm just so thrilled for him that he's able to do things his way. No studio intervention. He tells the stories that he wants to tell in the way that he wants to tell them, and we're all the better off for it. The animation, claymation, stop-motion animation, whatever you want to call it, it is so well done and so interesting to watch. And there are times where you actually forget that you're watching something that isn't real life. I don't know if that makes much sense, but no, obviously these characters are over, I can't say over designed, but I mean, Max, if he lived in the real world, it's like when you see those things where it's like, if Homer Simpson lived in the real world, he'd look like this and taking him and making him flesh colored. And it's usually very horrific. If Max lived in the real world, he would be horrific, but I love the way that his character looks. And I forget that I'm watching an animated character because I am so invested in these people's stories. For years before Mary and Max 
I was, as was my whole family, into the Aardman Animation Studio stuff. And that's very, very different in terms of the stories that they want to tell. I love Aardman stuff equally, but for different reasons. Like Mary and Max, like the stories that Adam Elliott tells, you're completely, at least, well, I know I am completely invested in the stories that they tell, like for Wallace and Gromit or chicken run or even these little shorts creature comforts i don't know if you've seen those but they're just it's all about great storytelling and yes claymation or stop motion animation it's a means to an end to tell these stories because it may be a better way to do it than to do it live action but because the stories are written so well and so believably that don't spend your entire time thinking, man, this looks so fantastic. It's not, I mean, I'm not going to go hanging shit on CGI animation. You know, that's fine. That serves its purpose. But often if I'm watching something like that, I'll think, wow, look at the, uh, look at the great animation that they've made here. Look at the level of detail that they've done. And I've been taken away from the story. I never watch an Adam Elliott film or an Aardman film and think, wow, how magnificent is this animation? I mean, maybe in hindsight, I'll come back and think, yeah, that was pretty good. But while I'm watching the story, it's the story that I'm focusing on. And this, yeah, the story is king here, absolutely, the character development. If I could, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the opening scene of the film, well, rather the opening credits of the film, because this film is full of lists in the latter part of the film, while the two of them are writing to each other, we have lists of questions or Max gives a list as to, I have Asperger's syndrome and these are the things that Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff has told me are uh, typical of what makes an Aspergian. I prefer Aspie for short. I will now list some of the traits of an Aspie. Number one, I find the world very confusing and chaotic because my mind is very literal and logical. Two, I have trouble understanding the expressions on people's faces. When I was younger, I made a book to help me when I was confused. I still have trouble with some people. Ivy was hard to understand because of her wrinkles and because her eyebrows weren't real. Three, I have bad handwriting, am hypersensitive, clumsy, I can get very concerned. Four, I like solving problems. Ivy said this is a good thing. And finally, number five, I have trouble expressing my emotions. Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff says my brain is defective, but one day... There will be a cure for my disability. I do not like it when he says this. I do not feel disabled, defective, or a need to be cured. I like being an Aspie. It would be like trying to change the color of my eyes. But even the beginning of the film, we have like a visual list of things that 
we already know what Mary Daisy Dinkle's world is like. So just over that opening credits, we get a crane shot lowering on to the suburb of Mount Waverley at dawn. We see a street sign called Lamington Drive. And for those outside of Australia, Lamington is like a national cake dish. <laughs> we see sneakers on a power line. We see a football on a tiled suburban roof. We see a sprinkler on the lawn, roller skates. Uh, we see knocked over rubbish bins, uh, leather boxes, a barbecue with a burnt sausage. And uh, we, we see a Hills hoist, that most suburban of 1970s Australiana, the, the washing line. Rather than using in dialogue, yeah, this is what my life is like. I have all these things, uh, which Mary does, for, but for more important things to her. But the visuals set up the environment. And I also want to contrast with a little film clip that I sent to you. I wasn't sure whether this was like an early take or maybe if this was for the American release of the film and then you worked out, you said, ah, no, this looks like it's someone's class project. But the opening credits that this person had done for their class project as an alternative was they showed uh, a phone book and they showed Mary's self-portrait. Uh, and they showed a typewriter. These were items that they used in the film. And okay, that's fine enough for this class project. But I think if Adam had done that, uh, for the real film, it would not have been as effective. It would not have been effective at all, really, to showing us Mary's world at the start of the film, which is really what we're after. It would have just been like, here's a list of the things which when you watch the film a second time, you'll understand why these things are here. And there's no real point in that. But in the real film, we get this beautiful picture right off the bat as to what her world is like. And by the time the opening credits are done, we already know who, what our main character lives in, the environment that she lives in. It is so well done. And yeah, it's, it's montage and being able to use really smart montage. I mean, just the filmmaking level itself. You know, you're talking about the lists and you're talking about the way that Max uses lists. And I just love when he goes through his previous jobs. He likes to list off what jobs he'd had before. He likes to list off his favorite words and that he actually has written down his favorite words or typed them out and that he has that list posted to the wall. You know, just little details like that are, are terrific. And I love when they use like little flashbacks, like um, when Mary's talking about her grandfather, where babies come from, and he's describing how babies come from, um, dads find them in the bottom of their beer. So we've got a flashback to grandfather talking about that. We have the little animated sequence of him describing the baby with the in the beer uh, thing. Then we cut to even a flashback kind of within the flashback or like a side flashback where it's him uh, in the polar bear club and uh, her describing how he loves to, to go into the cold water because it makes his nipples hard. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they will cut away to things like that or or Max has a lot of thought bubbles of like uh, the woman at the Overeaters Anonymous uh, class that makes him nervous and he'll like think of her and she'll come up over his typewriter and then he'll like shudder about that. He's using all of these different methods of storytelling. It's not just a straight ahead narrative. There's nothing straight ahead about this movie. The way that it's 
been told. You know, we're talking about how it's all voiceovers and the, the narration and the narrator, that he knows when to use those things and how to use them effectively. And we get the richness of the story all coming from these different ways of telling those. I mean, isn't that the amazing thing? Whenever we sort of think about other films where there's like maybe 20 or 30 minutes is spent on peripheral matters that don't push the plot along, we cite that as a criticism of that film. We think, well, the movie just stops here. Here, the movie is about the character description. It is about the minutiae and the film as the story goes along, as we see the things that happen that set Max off the edge or things that happen in Mary's life. I mean, I wouldn't say they're almost incidental, but really the film here is about the small detail and that's this film's strength. And I fully acknowledge that that couldn't be the case for every film, but in this one, it's a joy. I take as much joy maybe as Max would from reading Mary Daisy Dinkle's letter or hearing her narrate her letters as it was. I mean, I'm, I'm not rocking back and forth at, at the end of it because, you know, there's nothing that sets me off like, like Max, but otherwise I'm taking the joy that he does or the joy that she does from getting a letter back from him. We almost feel like we're part of the correspondence and Adam Elliott has really personalized it. You care about these characters and you feel he draws you in. You feel you're part of it. We get to know these folks so well because we are hearing directly from their brains, even though mostly in the movie, we're hearing the brain of a child. And so we're hearing her say things that we know aren't right or true. And I'm always curious about what Max's understanding of those things are. Like she talks about her neighbor's homophobia, which is actually supposed to be agoraphobia. agoraphobia. <laughs> <laughs> and then we hear things from Max and Max doesn't understand the world very well because of his syndrome that he gets confused very easily. He doesn't understand signals. So we're getting things filtered through him. So I love that we get things filtered through both of these characters and get to see what the real thing is mostly, but we are also relying on these narrators who aren't necessarily 100% in touch with their world, which also makes you realize, oh, well, I'm probably not 100% percent in touch with my world too i'd like to be i'd like to understand everything that's going on around me but i would say most of my frustration in the world is why are you doing this i don't understand what your motivation is <laughs> so and that's got to be their worlds as well right now it reminded me of one of the novels that i had to read for i can't remember it was year 11 or year 12 back in high school and it was the catcher in the rye the main character holden caulfield he frequently is citing things that he doesn't understand about the world around him i mean it could be debatable because of the 1950s whether he was uh, an aspergian before it was officially a thing but there are points in the book, and I remember sort of when our teacher would ask us to talk about various aspects, what we liked about it, or bring up specific topics about the book, and no one else in the class enjoyed the book. They thought, who gives a shit whether he, he doesn't like it when nuns have uh, uh, cheap suitcases, or who gives a shit that he cares about uh, his 
ex about his girlfriend having um, keeping her uh, kings in the back row the the entire game through a game of chess, and I was thinking, well, that little bit of detail, I think that really we all do care about it in in a small way. It's just we don't always feel the need to bring it out into the public. But Holden Caulfield's thing throughout this book that is who he is is to talk about these little details and i found that was a book that i really found myself being involved in when i first read it and for about 20 years after that i read and reread the book every year and i sort of see a lot of that in max horowitz you know he verbalizes everything that concerns him because that is his world you know he talks about he doesn't understand why people litter. He doesn't understand why people breathe smoke into the air. He doesn't understand why, what's her name, Marge, I've forgotten her surname, it would uh, flirts with him. She, he, finds it, he finds it frightening. And these are sort of things which maybe a lot of people would, who are undiagnosed would just maybe keep to themselves. But he brings this up. And that sort of leads to another point, is that I think that this film, unlike maybe other films or TV series about someone with Asperger's, is probably pretty accurate. Uh, Adam Elliott had said that you know Max was based on someone who he had a multi-year written correspondence with. So Adam would actually be the Mary to his pen pals Max. He was you know, another uh, Jewish atheist living in New York, uh, Aspergian. And so everything that he wrote, he, I'm sure he wanted to get absolutely spot on in terms of the detail. I mean, I, I don't want to say anything out of turn. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but uh, I'd like to think that he got all that right. And um, in fact, I remember speaking but this many, many years ago with uh, you know, probably just after the film came out with a very close friend of mine who has Asperger's and the whole notion like of the moment where Max is really, really frightened off by that woman at his overeaters group who flirts with him. And my friend said that is 100% him. That is how he felt. So this film gets it right on an artistic level and it gets it right where really important on uh, a, a clinical level, you know, psychology. And it, I'm sure that that was something uh, that he – just felt very, very strongly about was getting that right. The film is humorous, but they're not playing Max's ailment for laughs. We are not laughing at Max, which I appreciate. It doesn't feel like this is an exploitation type of film, that this is really trying to understand where Max is coming from. And it's very interesting to me. I, I did watch Harvey Crumpet after I'd seen Mary Max a few times and to see the similarities between Harvey Crumpet, the character and Mary and Max, the movie, because Harvey is a little bit Mary and a little bit Max. And especially that Harvey has that little book around his neck. And I noticed that Mary's got the, the chip bag around her neck. And then I, think that Max wears his book around his neck and his book, you know, Harvey's book is about facts and things that he's learning is his wisdom throughout the years. And I love that we have these facts that kind of break up the movie and, and uh, seeing 
either the lessons that he's learned and and those becoming facts you know through the previous scene or the fact gets stated and then we see the lesson being taught uh with max he has this little book and it has a frowny face and a smiley face just to give him the visual cues to say is this person angry or are they not angry. And I like that his neighbor Ivy confuses him so much because she has so many wrinkles on her face that he can't read her expression. And also that her eyebrows are painted on. So they're not true eyebrows. So he can't pick up those visual clues from Ivy because of the wrinkles and the eyebrows. I appreciate those little details that are in this film and that, yeah, Max, it's somewhat amusing when he gets angry about cigarette butts or to hear the way that he phrases things, that kind of overly sharing of, of things, you know, him talking about how he's never worn a condom or his explanation of where babies come from. In America, babies are not found in cola cans. I asked my mother when I was four, and she said they came from eggs laid by rabbis. If you aren't Jewish, they're laid by Catholic nuns. If you're an atheist, they're laid by dirty, lonely prostitutes. Those kind of things, it's just, it's wonderful. And it's almost poetry, the way that this script is, to hear how these characters talk. There's really a a beauty to it. It's not taking Max and making him into like a rain man. We're not laughing at this guy. We're kind of laughing at the absurdity of the world. Hmm. Look, I I mean, I never could bring myself to watch this TV show, Big Bang Theory, but I gather that that was sort of the moment. Hey, here are all these geeks. We know they're on the spectrum. Let's have a laugh at them. And I mean, look, if there are any Big Bang Theory viewers out there who say, no, it's not like that at all, feel free to not write me. I don't know. That was the impression that I had from a distance. And there was another film that came out I think in the mid 2000s or maybe, uh, maybe post Mary Max. I can't remember. Film called Adam. And I don't remember who played the title character, but it had Rose Byrne and it was about an Aspergian. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's what I've always said, but you know, a, a character with Asperger's syndrome who he has a day job. I think working in a science lab of some sort and he has this romantic relationship or he wants to have this romantic relationship with his neighbor. And whilst I think that film was a lot more respectful, but the character was pretty wooden. And I mean, okay, every person is, is different, but I, I think there's something about Max in Mary and Max who, even though he's, um, he finds a world of love and he finds a world of romance really quite repellent, but he's, he's very emotional. And he says, uh, look, I'm smiling on the inside. I just can't pick up on your cues, but he gets furious when he's hurt. He wants a friend. And so that, you know, that's the sadness at not having one. He's very emotional, but if the characters have been completely wooden, which I think is what Hollywood wanted to present characters on the spectrum as being like, that's just, you know, for, for an audience for a laugh. And as you say, Mike, Max is treated completely respectfully. And, you know, that probably once again comes down to, uh, Adam Elliott's friendship for many years with his, uh, with his pen pal. I will admit that. 
people with Asperger's sometimes confuse me. If I don't know that they're on the spectrum, I usually will react poorly. I think that I have some listeners of the show that have Asperger's and will write to me and stuff. And it's just like, what is compelling you to do this? Like, there are a lot of people <laughs> that just like, I'll, I'll be talking about somebody and then they'll feel the need to come back and say, oh, they were in this, this, and this, and this. And it's just like, yeah, that's cool. I wasn't talking about that at all. I was talking about an actor, you know, like, oh, Ty Sheridan. Um, you know, oh, I, I really like Ty Sheridan in this movie. Not that I have really cared for his performances and anything, <laughs> but, um, and then somebody will come back and be like, oh, Ty Sheridan, he was in the night clerk where he played this character who might have Asperger's as well. I can't remember that movie. It was, uh, I kind of pushed it out of my head. Um, and it's like, okay, that's great. I wasn't really talking about that. But then if I notice that same person doing it over and over and over again, I'm just like, well, maybe they have something. It makes me get out of my own way a little bit and realize, oh, there are people that are different from me that might feel very compelled to do things that I don't understand the reason for them doing that. And I just have to like, have a little fucking empathy every now and then to other people that might be different than me. Oh my God, what a shocker. A, a thing that's truly missing from the world at the moment, unfortunately. The beauty of this film is it shows how we can have that level of humanity. Uh, we don't need to be treating anyone extra special. We just need to be there. We just need to be a friend. And ultimately, that's what this film is about. You know, that we can say that. It's a film about two lonely people finding comfort in each other. And, you know, sure, there are a ton of films that do that. But here we got, you know, they do it from a distance. We've got a 40-something-year-old man living on one side of the planet and an eight-year-old girl living on the other side of the planet. And on the surface, you to describe that to someone without giving any further details, that might sound a little bit creepy. But it's not at all uh, this film is a beautiful film about friendship and about understanding and about two people who genuinely care for each other. We get like Max at one point saying, you know, I, I think after his first letter, he says to her, uh, people confuse me. I don't understand them, but I think I can trust you and have you as my friend. He's her opening letter. There was, after after he sort of got over his initial nervousness at the whole concept of being sent a letter from a stranger, everything that she said was the sort of thing that he liked. She liked asking questions. He liked answering questions or solving problems. That's sort of what draws them in together. Well, that and their mutual love of food and the noblets. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, they, that's a beautiful point of uh, of commonality between the two of them. There's also one other thing. I sort of wanted to ask you what you thought about this because the, his world is black and white. Her world is brown. But the one other color that we see in the film is red, but only on certain objects. And at first I sort of thought, all right, I've got a clue on this. So we get the redness of the uh, Australia post box that she puts her letter into. Uh, and we get to see the redness of the 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 flame of uh, the statue of liberty in new york and so those are you know both her sending a letter to the other side of the planet and the flame and the statue of liberty are both symbols of hope so i thought oh, maybe that's what it represents but also there's 
tongues and lipstick, and especially the, the lipstick is, always represents something that's not so great, like uh, uh, the lipstick on very Daisy Denkel, who's you know not giving a damn about her daughter, or the the lipstick on Marge, the woman who has amorous attention on Max. So, I don't know, do you see there's some other level of commonality, or maybe I'm reading too much into it? I don't necessarily know of a theme that we can point to for all of those, because you're talking about that. Of course, I think of the red pom-pom that Max wears on his yarmulke. But then I also think about the red shoes that Mary wears when she's ready to like go out into the world. She's very confident in who she is now, and she wants to meet this boy across the way that she's had a a, uh, a crush on for all these years, Damien Papadopoulos. They're not necessarily tied together. You know, the flame, the lips, the shoes, the pom-pom, all this. For me, you know, when uh, we'll hear from Adam Elliott later on in the in the episode, he talks about how he picked up on spot color from Schindler's List and the little girl in the red coat. The little girl in the red coat is very interesting to me because she's just, you know, we have so many people in the film that after a while, certain people become faceless. And then you get the little girl in the red coat who becomes not necessarily a symbol of hope, but she's somebody that we watch out for. And she's really, you know, all this attention is brought to her. And then eventually bad things happen to the little girl in the red coat. So I can't say that we necessarily follow these things through a Mary and Max like a thread other than that red pom-pom. The red pom-pom for me is so significant, especially you even look at the poster for the film and it's all black and white except for that one spot of red. And it just, and that is so important for Max because when he gets mad at Mary later on in the film, he doesn't wear the pom-pom. And when he is happy with her again, he puts the pom-pom back on. And I, I love that. But as far as the other uses of red, I don't necessarily see a theme for those things. I'm glad that you brought up the pom-pom. I can't think how I forgot to mention that one. But, yeah, the pom-pom is possibly the most significant single non-human character, if you will, in the film. She sends him that. He wears that on on the on his yamoka because you know the the yamoka keeps his brain warm. He's an atheist, but he, he said, "Oh yeah, I wear this because it keeps my brain warm." And I'm going to put this on as a decoration, but it also is Max's connection to Mary. So yeah, I see that as a almost as a character unto itself. And but yeah, that, I, yeah. How did I forget that? <laughs> You're talking about lists, and you kind of get lists also through the film in different ways as well. You get all of the books that he's read about atheism. What was the what, the Happy Heretic and all of yes. these different books that he's reading? You get all of the books that she's reading later on in the film about mental illness, and you have this big pile of books. And then you also have Mr. Ravioli, the imaginary friend who lives in the corner in Max's apartment, who Max doesn't think that he needs anymore. And Mr. Ravioli spends his time reading self-help books the entire movie until he decides that he's had enough and he just walks out into the world. And I love that you get each time you go back to it, he's reading a different book. It's kind of like the homeless man on the street where every time you go back to him, his sign says something different. And I do love, of course, his last sign, which is keep your money. I want change. 
Yes, I, yes, I, I only rewatched the film like about two days ago, just as a final thing. And that was the first time I'd paid attention to that sign. And that's another thing about this film is I think every time you watch it, you're going to catch something new. Um, I, I saw so much this time around, like paying attention to the names of those books that I previously hadn't done. I think, was it I'm one, I'm nuts, you're nuts or something like that. I'm nuts, but, uh, you're okay or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing I sort of wanted to bring up now, we haven't sort of gone and made much mention of the three short films that Adam had made pretty much, I think, while he was at the Victorian College of the Arts. Did you get a chance to see those? Uh, I have not seen those. Where are those available? They're, they're all on YouTube, cousin, brother, and uncle. In fact, I think uh, you can get them all separately, but there was uh, an interview that he did for, like, I think some community TV show. And you see him being interviewed by the host and all three films are shown in their entirety. They're only about four or five minutes within the context of that interview. But yeah, I'd recommend those for anyone who uh, hasn't seen those as a good starting point. And it's not only great to sort of watch his early development. I mean, visually, the, the characters look very he had an idea what he wanted his characters to look like and he stuck with it all along from there through to ernie biscuit the last film that he's made to date but the difference that having money meant for doing the medium length and the full length films that he's done after those short films was that he was able to show more of the world so cousin brother and uncle are all i think biographical at least semi-biographical and uh, so his character in Cousin has cerebral palsy. And we get a line in there that he repeats in Mary and Max. He describes his cousin as smelling of licorice. And that's the same descriptive that he gives for Max or that I think or that Barry Humphrey says at the end of the film, repeats, says, oh, she thought Mary, oh, she thought Max smelt like uh, licorice and old books. So even, in, but once again, in Cousin, the it's a mix of humor and drama. We, his character has an uncontrolled anger at one point of the film. And it's only four minutes long. In the film Brother, he describes his dad who became a paraplegic and then an alcoholic after an acrobatic accident. His brother had asthma. Uh, there's a moment where he swings on the hill's hoist, the washing line, which we see in Mary and Max at the beginning of the film. So Adam is obviously taking very much from what he sees around him. These film, I mean, I, I know Mary and Max is you know, half set in New York, but Mary's half, at least, is very, very Australian. And like the moments in the 70s, I thought, oh, I recognize that. I see that. I might not have known all these characters, but some of these characters I might have seen in my daily life. Uh, he had a very clear vision right from the start with visual style and character descriptives. I also want to just sort of give a quick mention as an aside to two people who I'm sure were very, very important. And I know were very, very important to Adam Elliott. One was uh, a fellow called William McInnes, who was the narrator for those three early films. I know that was Jeffrey Rush who did it for Harvey Crumpet. And there was a fellow called John Flaus who used to host a terrific radio program here called Film Buffs Forecast for many years. And But he's also a, a, an actor and a voice actor here. And um, we had Barry Humphreys for Mary and Max. But William McInnes, I think for me, I find him 
the most sympathetic sounding of all the narrators. I mean, I, I, they've all got something going for them, but William McInnes, he, he sounds like not overly flourished. It's very matter of factly. And yet there's still something sympathetic in his voice to, to my ears as well. The other person who I think would have been very important was Sarah Watt, who William McInnes was married to. Sarah Watt was a lecturer for Adam Elliott at the Victorian College of the Arts. And she made, she sort of mixed in both animation styles and regular film making style. So, uh, she made a couple of films, uh, one called My Year Without Sex and another one called Look Both Ways, which if push comes to shove, if it's not my number one Australian film ever, it's certainly in my top five. Uh, absolutely magnificent, but she mixes both regular filmmaking and animation in that film and like her style of animation is she delves in more well, maybe more traditional drawing and painting styles but it's also fairly rough it's not polished so i mean in that regard it's similar to adam elliott's but it's also the stories that she tells so there's like this little short film uh it's one of the bonus extras on the dvd of look both ways there's a short film called catch of the day and it's a great short about a woman who works in a fish market and all the customers that she gets. You see her like doing regular things like scraping off the scales on the fish and just how she goes about her day. But she gets all these people who are like, they sort of range from being completely dumb to being just obnoxious. And she sort of imagines them as, uh, as, sea creatures according to their personality just for a second she looks that's her little bit of taking control of her life i can sort of see in that a lot about the characters in adam elliott's films they're characters who sort of they're not happy with their surroundings but they daydream for a moment and they're in control of how they live their life and so mary take mary takes control of her life by by drinking sweet condensed milk or watching the noblets or she decides that she's going to write to a complete stranger across from the other side of the world doesn't matter that she's got she's not popular at school her teacher hates her the other students hate her but she's in a small way she takes control of her life and same with max i i think that this whole thing about sarah watt showing this character is in an unhappy situation, just imagining them just for a brief moment. And that's how she mentally takes care of herself. So, um, yeah, Sarah, what hugely important. Mary's life is so depressing, especially at the beginning when she tells us that her mom has told her that she's an accident and her mom is just an awful, awful person. (laughs) (laughs) So much of this movie we go to cemeteries a lot in this film. It talks about Mary's grandfather, and we end his story in a cemetery. There are so many stories that end in cemetery. Ivy, the other character, I mean, pretty much so many of these characters that we're talking about in this movie end up in a cemetery. I'm surprised that we didn't see Max's headstone at the end of the film. Well, I'm, I'm sort of glad that they didn't. I'm, I'm glad that they ended it where they did. It's awful in that she can't... She can't talk to her parents, you know, that she has to reach out to this stranger so many thousands of miles away to ask him about things that her parents won't 
talk to her about, you know, and that's one of the ones, one of the crucial letters that sets Max off and puts him into a mental institution for what, eight months, which is when she's asking about sex. She has no idea about sex. You know, the, the, one of the first things she asks him is about where babies come from. And when she starts talking about, you know, making sexy time with, uh, you know, different people, that's really what upsets him because he is not prepared to talk about that, that and, and bullying. She's bullied and her talking about bullying triggers him because he remembers all the times that he was bullied. And yeah, her mom, that, that mother character is just, she's so troubled, so messed up, should never have had children. But she did, and then she doesn't know how to take care of her kids. You sort of wonder whether at the initial uh, letter that she wrote to Max, whether she was like looking for someone as a surrogate parent, and not realizing that Max Jerry Horowitz was in no state to be anyone's surrogate parents. He barely knew how to be a friend, but they worked that out. Uh, but yet she still keeps on asking him the sort of questions that she would ask a parent, but she has probably adjusted, no, you're my friend rather than a replacement for my mother and my father. And she, I, I think even early on, this is sort of worked out, you know, she, uh, on her birthday, her mother makes her the, the cake with a cigarette stub in it, but her father gives her a camera. So she still sort of is aware of the family dynamic. And the only thing that stops me from writing off Vera as being a completely horrible character is later on in the film after Mary sort of realizes that she's going to make this horrible mistake by writing her is it her thesis or just or, or a book about Asperger's syndrome without confirming with Max that she could do it using him as a subject matter. And he basically says, our friendship is through, forget it. Uh, and she goes into this state of drunken depression. And we sort of see she's following the path that her mother went down. But we know Mary's backstory. We don't know Vera's backstory. We don't know had she lived some sort of better life or hopes of a better life beforehand, before just sort of falling down the rabbit hole of, of um, you know, drinking too much sherry and listening to the cricket and not doing anything else with her life. And we don't know what disappointments she faced. So it's only that that makes me sort of think, well, maybe I can't be completely contemptuous of her as a character. She didn't do anything wonderful for her daughter, but once, once the alcohol takes hold, who knows? So that, and that's probably the message. Once again, you were saying before about people who wrote to you uh, and were telling you trivial points about films that you discussed and thought, well, you know, that's not what we were talking about, but you learned some level of empathy and thought, all right, I know where you're coming from. And it's the same sort of thing with, Vera. I mean, the, the film teaches us that if we don't understand Max at first, but you learn to understand where he's from, you learn what it is that how he how he feels, how he thinks, and it's probably an unspoken thing that we probably should, even though we don't know Vera's backstory, we may have to have a little bit more, if not quite empathy, but at least a little bit more sympathy for her. I talked before about how Max can't pick up on signals, you know, that he has to have that book to be able to see if somebody's sad or angry or happy. 
Mary's very much the same way. Pretty much, I won't say from the first time we see Damien Papadopoulos, but I would say from at least the time when she's in college and we see Damien and he's got the boy George shirt on and he's in drama. I'm just like, okay, well, Damien's gay. And she cannot pick up on that to the point where he ends up leaving her for another guy and she didn't even notice that he was gone. So she becomes oblivious to him for who he is and then becomes oblivious to him even just leaving her life. And she's very much the same way. And I guess, you know, to that point, we're all probably the same way. There are probably very obvious things in our lives that we aren't picking up on, but it's easier to see it in a movie and be like, oh, well, this character obviously is, is going to be this, or this character is happy or sad or whatever, but our main characters in this, which are our surrogates, can't pick up on those signals, which I appreciate that there's that parity between Mary and Max. That you know She's not perfect either. She obviously comes from this very weird childhood, you know, who hasn't, right? And then when she grows up, she's a flawed adult, just like Max is a flawed adult. And I appreciate that nobody in this movie is a perfect human being. Everybody has their weight to carry. You know, even poor Len across the street with his homophobia, you know, just can't get over that. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's the beauty towards the back end of the film where Max actually sort of verbalizes that. He says, uh, after being mad at her for all this time for having written the book without consulting him, uh, he says, uh, Mary Daisy Dinkle, you are not perfect. And neither am I. That's fine. I accept you for who you are. And I'm sending you all my entire Noblet collection as my way of saying that I forgive you. He acknowledges that. And that's probably the most important takeaway in the back half of the film that he realizes that she wasn't being, she wasn't actually betraying him. She just wasn't thinking. It was just a moment of being imperfect and, as you say, yeah, we, we're not only, we're, we're all imperfect. I mean, that's a, that's a given. We're all imperfect to the extent that we don't necessarily pick up on other signals. We're not necessarily diagnosed with having Asperger's, but often people can be insensitive to others' needs and, you know, we label it narcissism, but. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons or, you know, maybe sometimes we're sort of thinking about something bad in our lives and we can't necessarily take on something bad in someone else's lives. We don't recognize that because we've got a very narrow vision. And that's why I said earlier on in the episode that this film is universal. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a character like Max in New York or a character like Mary in Mount Waverley. Uh, they, they have very specific issues but their but their shortcomings and their positives are universal to everyone, and that's why I say we pretty much can all identify with what they uh, with what they represent. Him writing to her and telling her that he accepts that she's not perfect. That's probably the second moment in the film that I cry. The first moment is when she is going through her crisis and asking, like pleading for help from him about being bullied. That makes me cry. And then the end of the film makes me cry. And I've seen this film probably at least six times now, if not more. And it never fails every single time. I tear up 
even though I know what's going to happen or has happened, I will still cry. And here I am, 48-year-old man, crying at fucking claymation figures on screen. That's how powerful the, f- the storytelling is in this film. I think if the listeners out there who have decided to listen to this but have not watched the film, uh, so you've gone through all the spoilers, but if you take nothing else away from this conversation, please just take away the fact that this is about the story. And, yeah, you, you say it's, you're crying at claymation, but, no, you're crying at this part in the story. It's the story was always king about this film. I can't say that enough. There's – one moment, well, I mean, yeah, like you, there were moments where I welled up a bit, but I think the moment that got me anxious, and I alluded to this earlier on when I was talking about the music and how it represents the characters. So there's a moment late in the film where uh, Mary has decided that she's hit absolutely rock bottom. She doesn't have a book that she can publish anymore because she destroyed them all out of guilt. She doesn't have a husband anymore for all the fact that she had a poor relationship with her parents. They're not there. There's no one. She has no one. So she decided that she's going to hang herself and she's going to take an overdose of pills and that's going to end all her misery. And the soundtrack at that point plays a version of K Sarah Sarah by, I think it was a pink martini. That was a moment where, you know, like I had my 10 or 11 year old son in the cinema and I thought, uh oh, is this going where I think it is? I think I better take him out. I thought, okay, you can see Chihuahua's fucking, but you, but seeing a character on the verge of suicide, I don't think, I, I mean, actually we, do have like Vera Denkel commit suicide earlier on in the film. We don't actually see that there's, uh, we see the stuffed animals uh, after she's lost her husband and she feels she can't cope anymore. So there's already been one suicide. Is it an honest mistake or is it a suicide attempt? I think you can read it either way. Well, I, I read it as suicide and that's her humanitarian part. So as we said, the characters are complex. The characters are not, uh, black and white, you know, then their living environments are brown or black and white, but the characters are not black and white. And she's, once again, I come back to the thing that Vera Dinkle is, she's got a backstory that we just don't know. And for all the fact that she had this marriage, maybe that she wasn't happy in, but I believe that she feels she's got nothing and her husband has died. So she commits suicide. That's what, I don't think that was an honest mistake that she just sort of was reaching for the sherry and she drank formaldehyde instead. I think that was a, uh, that was very deliberate. So when Mary finds herself, she's really following in her mother's footsteps as she's decided that she's going to commit suicide. And we hear Kesara, Sarah, and it has this dreamy like quality. It's not sung as a song of hope for the future. It's, we, we get these, um, the, the music has these discordant variations from the Doris Day original. It's perfect for what it suits there, but, that music at that moment just 
every time I watch it, and like you, Mike, I've seen it quite a few times, it still makes me anxious. And I think that's a sign of a good film where you watch something and you know how it's going to win, but you still feel that level of emotion. I watched West Side Story and I always pray that that's going to win differently. But in this one, I mean, look, I'm, I'm glad that you know, it, she is saved by Len, who gets over his own agoraphobia. And, um, you know, it, it ends up, it ends up well, but, you know, not stupidly Hollywood ending happy, but she's saved and she finds her way with peace. But even the use of that song in The Man Who Knew Too Much with uh, Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart, I'm sort of thinking back to that. That song is used twice in the film, you know, once at a happy moment in the film as she's singing to her son. And then later on in the, mo- in the film where she thinks that you know, she's just gone and saved someone from being shot by screaming in with the orchestra and uh, she's asked to sing a song uh, and she's still not sure if she's ever going to find her son alive or not. And it, it takes on this very suspenseful aspect and she's miserable, really, really upset. So it's, it's interesting how this song of potentially of hope has, has been used in films in well, potentially three different ways. And I can't even sort of think, you know, if the, if the song has been used in other films and how it's been used there. But yeah, coming back to your point, be way at the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the podcast, how effectively music is used in this film. And I, that, at that point, I'm, I'm not saying that if they hadn't used that music, it wouldn't be as effective, but it would have been very, very different. I just, think that the choice of music, the visuals, everything, this is a five-star film. It's absolutely perfect. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the writer-director of Marion Max, Adam Elliott, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, Projection Booth listeners. This is Mark Begley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. You may remember me from Projection Booth episodes on The Antenna, Crumbs, and The Brood. And Mike White himself has appeared on my show where we discussed Eraserhead, Taxi Driver, The Evil Dead, and Shivers. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. Morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Other guests have included genre film journalists Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter Cleo to join me. Hey, that's me. Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out. WakeUpHeavy.com, SoundCloud.com slash WakeUpHeavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. 
Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodas-Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Blam! The door opens. It's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmer is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Can you tell me how you got interested in filmmaking? You talked about being an artist, but how did you go from making art on your own to making art in front of a camera? Ever since I was a little boy, I was uh, drawing and making things out of found objects. I, I, yeah, our family were brought up in the uh, outback of Australia, so we were sort of restricted when it came to materials. So I, I tended to make things out of old toilet rolls and uh, pipe cleaners and anything I could get my hands on. So I was always using my hands from a very early age, and I loved drawing and. I had a very isolated childhood. There weren't many other kids to play with. I was raised on a shrimp farm in the outback of Australia. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, but I, I think I had a very limited childhood in that the, even there were no other real forms of entertainment. Um, we could we could get TV, but there were only two channels and we only had a black and white TV. So really I only had books and my, my pencils and my my paper to sort of keep me busy and to entertain myself. So that's where it all began. But I I'd never was really into comic books. I didn't really have any aspirations to be an animator. I knew that uh, I was certainly wanting to pursue something that was creative. Um, I loved writing. I loved photography. So it wasn't until the age of about 25 that I discovered stop-motion animation, went to film school and that has become my vocation. Uh, <laughs> we couldn't even afford proper Play-Doh when I was a kid or plasticine. My mum used to make it out of uh, flour and water and food dye. So um, it wasn't that I, I had this burning ambition to be a clay animator from a young age. It, it all just sort of happened accidentally. Can you tell me about some of your early shorts? Can you tell me about uh, Uncle, Cousin and Brother? Well, when I was at film school, I was one of the few animators who didn't want to do traditional cell animation, 2D animation. My father at the time owned a hardware shop, so I had access to all these cheap materials. And the lecturers at film school really encouraged me to pursue stop motion. And they felt that my writing and my screenplays were more suited to stop motion. 
Mainly because my drawings, I, I was I was born with a hereditary shake, and so my drawings have always had a wobbliness and an imperfection to them, and so my plasticine characters had a very uh, blobby, uh, asymmetrical aesthetic, and my stories were, of course, about people who were uh, perceived as different or uh, having some sort of affliction, and so there seemed to be this uh, nice uh, marriage between my lumpy aesthetic and these uh, tales of uh, imperfection. So my first film, Uncle, was uh, based on eight of my uncles. My films are biographical, but they're not certainly not documentaries. They are works of fiction, but that old adage, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, I I, I start with truth and then I embellish and they're, they're very personal stories. I, I treat my characters with a lot of respect and dignity and uh, my aim with all my films is to tell stories that are very authentic and believable. And so Uncle was really, um, it gave me a taste of, 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 of a style of filmmaking that others weren't really pursuing at the time. Most animation seemed to be geared towards um, children and, and more fantasy and talking animals. And, and I really just wanted to tell these very minimal personal stories. And so I made Uncle and it did well at festivals. And uh, the government said, Adam, we, we think you should keep making these. So um, I then made Cousin and it did well. And then I made Brother and I, you know, I've got 65 cousins. So I thought I'll just keep going right through every relative I've got. But, uh, yeah, look, I, I quickly realised that uh, these little short black and white five-minute films were, were fine, but they weren't making me any money and I, it was very uh, – it was a struggle to survive. So I knew it was time I made something a bit longer and a bit more uh, sophisticated, which is why we then moved on to Harvey Crumpet. You're talking about the biographical nature of what you've done. Where is Harvey Crumpet? Do you know someone like a Harvey Crumpet? I had Harvey, uh, the character of Harvey Crumpet in my head for almost 10 years. Uh, I had a dog called Harvey who, unfortunately, uh, mum ran over in, in, in the car and killed, sadly, and um I must admit I do love eating crumpets, which is, I don't know if you have crumpets in America, but they're an English uh, pastry. Uh, and I just love the combination of those two words together, Harvey Crumpet. And so I invented this whole backstory of what, you know, why would somebody be surname be called Crumpet? So I invented the fact that he was uh, Polish and he had to assimilate when he came to Australia. But there's there's many aspects of Harvey which are, are based on real people. Um, I lived with a woman who's uh, who was Polish, whose father used to come around, who was uh, uh, who fled World War II to come to Australia and start a new life. So there's aspects of his life in there. I had a Cub Scout leader who had a steel plate in his head after a, an accident, and I was always fascinated by this steel plate and wondered whether it could be magnetised or could it pick up radio signals. So, yeah, there's certainly – Harvey is an amalgamation of, of many of these people as compared to the other characters in my other films, which are more singular, uh, singularly based on, on a real person. I'm curious what your process is when you come up with a character or a, or a story like a Harvey Crumpet or like a Marion Max. Do you draw it out first? Do you write it out first? I mean, what are those initial – things that you do to to get the project going 
Well, strangely, I always start with a, a sense of anger and injustice. So it's usually uh, uh, it's usually something that I've observed in somebody else's life that I feel empathy towards, and then also a sense of injustice. And in, and to sort of make sense of that, my pen pal, uh, who Max is based on, Mary Max, uh, does have Asperger's and has had led a life where he has really struggled and been misunderstood and bullied. So I, I, you know, I knew with that feature film that I really wanted to write about his life and not so much educate people, but enlighten them and sort of get them to empathise and put themselves in my character's shoes. So that's that's really where all the films start. And I don't, when I'm writing, I don't see them as animated or claymated films. I, in my head, I'm writing very real stories that they that that could be filmed as live action films. I certainly aren't. I'm not drawing, and I'm, at that point, I'm not sculpting with clay. I, I just am writing a story. With, I'm trying to write a good story, well told, and it's trying to get a balance between the the comedy, the tragedy, humour, pathos, the light, the dark, and 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 like I said earlier, trying to create very believable and authentic stories that just happen to be blobs of clay that are animated frame at a time. So. Yeah, that's my process. It is sort of different to many other writers of uh, and writers of directors for animation. I also am not plot obsessed. I sort of more interested in the detail, and and I I start with the detail and hope by the end of the fourth or fifth draft of the script that there is a plot and and, and a three act structure. So, uh, yeah, I, I love idiosyncrasies. I love nuance. I love detail and. Um, and I love creating characters that have uh, dimension to them, that um, ha- are full of incongruities and and um, contradictions, and and that's why I base them on real people. Because of course, you know, um, uh, truth is much more interesting and, <laughs> and believable than fiction. How did you get a pen pal? I'm always curious about that. I had a few when I was growing up, and I don't even remember how I managed to get a hold of these folks. Well, I'm almost 50 now, and back in the, the 70s and 80s, before the internet, we we had pen pals, and of course, uh, they were far more common to have a pen pal back then, or a pen friend, uh, but usually a lot of people gave up writing to their pen pals, you know, they ran out of things to talk about, or they just lost interest, but for some reason, my pen pal in uh, New York, uh, we're still writing. He, he's alive and well, and we've been writing to each other for, gee, well, must be almost 30 years now. Uh, but he wrote to me. Back then, There's there was a, a fanzine, a fandom directory, which was like a big phone book uh, for artists and like-minded people to connect around the world. And he uh, he wrote to me and and was very interested in having an Australian pen pal. He saw Australia and still does see Australia as a very exotic place and wanted to learn more about Australia. So I wrote back and these letters started to fly between the two continents. Um, and I, I knew from a very early point that there was something different about the way he wrote and uh, as time went on I learned more and more about um, his life and the fact that he was eventually then diagnosed with Asperger's 
you know, I kept all these letters and I still have all these letters in a big box and uh, it wasn't too difficult for to find inspiration for my first feature film. I just read reread all his letters and I thought, I think I need to make a film about him. Have you ever met him? We did eventually meet after the film was finished. Uh, it was a bit of uh, life imitating art where I flew to New York and uh, I think it was 2010 when we finally met on New Year's Eve. I got the ferry across from Manhattan. He was living in Staten Island at the time. And uh, we went across and we met and then we went to a Jewish deli and had a fabulous meal and had some cheese blintzes and uh, uh yeah, it was it was it was quite, and I I I find the word surreal uh, a bit of a hackneyed term, but it it truly was a surreal day. Sadly, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who played the voice of Max, uh, had this great idea: the three of us would meet for lunch. Uh, <laughs> the real Max, uh, and I'm Mary. I should add that I Mary is based on my life. And then Philip would be the voice of Max. And then, but sadly, of course, Philip passed away, and and we, the three of us, never had that lunch. But um, it was interesting too because my pen pal, he knew about the film, he knew I'd written it, he'd he'd read the screenplay, uh, but he couldn't see why I was spending millions of dollars of. Australian taxpayers' money telling a tale about his life. He, he thought he <laughs> would be a very dull film. but And, of course, in true Asperger's fashion, he wrote me a list of all the things he thought could be could have been better after the film was finished. <laughs> so, yeah. I seem to remember hearing that you and Philip Seymour Hoffman never actually met, that you directed him thousands of miles away. Yes, it was very difficult to get Philip to Australia at the time. He, of course, was doing back-to-back films. He was also doing theatre. And at the time, uh, one of the recording sessions, he was in London. So we managed to um, hook up a very expensive uh, sound studio link between a sound studio in London and one here in Melbourne. And we did the whole recording session via the internet. Um, And at the time, you know, over 10 years ago, that was, was a risky thing to do. But we managed to do it and it was in a way good because I didn't have to worry about the meeting and greeting of him and, you know, getting him looked after and the limousines and the hotels and all those things that big A-list actors, uh, agents demand. But Philip, you know, he was he was very, um, very down to earth and the reason he said yes to the role uh, was, I mean, he really hadn't done much animation, voices to animation, but... He, the character of Max really did resonate with him. And of course, he's a New Yorker, was a New Yorker, and he really identified with Max and the loneliness that Max went through and the melancholy. And it, it we were so thrilled to have him, of course. And uh, his voice just seemed to marry with our little plasticine blob perfectly. And, and I think Part of the film's success is really because of Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance and, uh, again, the authenticity and the very believable, unique way that a lot of people with Asperger's uh, speak and and, uh, he he just captured that, that sort of monotone, deadpan delivery that my real pen 
pen pal um that's how he speaks so yeah look it was we were very lucky and and you know of course we didn't have a lot of time with philip he he you know was we i think we had two six-hour sessions so we had to cram a lot into those we didn't have the luxury that you know big studios like pixar have where the actors come back multiple times and and of course we didn't have the money to pay philip what he would normally um get for a film uh so he was very generous and and was very extremely um, dedicated in making sure he he got the performance we needed. He did a lot of private uh, rehearsals and we didn't, again, we didn't get much time to really um, speak about what we're after. He just did it. He was, it was incredible just watching him transform uh, instantly into that role. And, uh, and the world, sadly, of course, you know, uh, it was a big loss when he passed away. And just imagine how many more wonderful films he would have made. To get him into that Max voice, did you send him what the character was supposed to look like, or did you base the character on his voice? A little bit of both. I I had he him as a, an actor I wanted pretty early on, way back when I was writing the second or third draft of the screenplay. I had his voice in my head, and I, I think at the time I was obsessed with his uh, performance in the film Happiness. I love that film. Oh, it's so wonderfully dark. And there was something uh, very melancholic and beautiful about the role he played in that film, that loneliness of that guy in his apartment. Uh, and it's, it just seemed, his voice just seemed perfect. So, and also there was the, he had the, the physicality, he had the weight, he had that, that, that um, bass to his voice that we really needed. And uh, yeah, so he, he was top of my list right from a very early stage. But he, oh, he, and we really got him in after we'd done all the animation. It was all done in post, really. We'd already shot everything, so we we gave him some, you know, sequences to look at. But he really didn't need them. He just he just knew uh, the type of person Max was, and he it was all based uh, his performance really based of on the, the the dialogue from the screenplay rather than the actual animation itself. I tend to be an anomaly in the animation world in that I I get the I get the actors in after we've animated, which sounds bizarre. But we really most of my films really have very little lip sync, so they're all driven by the narration and the voiceover, which for some people can be quite grating. But I I think I'm a very lazy animator, and I love the intimacy that comes with narration and. And a lot of my narrators are anonymous. And so we, we really wanted to keep Max's lip sync to a minimum and, and have that internal voice coming through. And, and again, that intimacy and believable uh, feeling uh, and tone. And so I think, again, that's, that's why I think the character of Max uh, is, is works. And, and I, I know a lot of people who've seen the film uh, and contact me the the first thing they often say is, "Oh, this is this is not like other animated films," and and I said, "Well, we 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 you know we really didn't want it to be like any other animated film." When I was at film school, I was told that a director and a writer's job is to push the boundaries and to come up with something new and and original and something that's hasn't really been done before and so of course my my short films were all precursors to Mary and Max and ways for me to sort of uh, explore that uh, that that type of storytelling 
And I think, too, back then, Mary and Max was a little bit of ahead of its time because you know, there's so many people said, oh, but this film's not for children. I said, no, <laughs> none of my films are for children. And, and in, in Europe, of course, there's a long tradition of animation never being for children. And um, whereas now, of course, there's a lot more adult animation uh, and, and things have really changed in the last 10 years. So... Um, I think if we made Mary and Max today, we wouldn't have the the same struggles as we had back then to get the film seen and and understood. To have Jeffrey Rush for Harvey Crumpet and to have Barry Humphreys for Mary and Max, I mean, just two Australian luminaries must have been kind of neat to work with those guys. You know, they were all heroes of mine at the time and uh, and and Melbournians. Uh, and here in Melbourne, for some reason, I don't know, maybe it's something in the water, we seem to generate a lot of uh, renowned actors, Kate Blanchett, uh, um, you know, and Jeffrey. I mean, they do. And Russell, um, Eric Banner lives down the road. Jeffrey lives down the road. Um, so they're all they're all locals, and we all we all know each other. And and I didn't. I mean, of course, they're very very uh, uh, difficult actors to get, and you have to go through the barrier of their agents. <laughs> I think, luckily, the. You know, the unique nature of stop motion. I mean, so many actors love voicing animation, of course, so they don't have to wear makeup and costumes and all the rest. They get well paid. Uh, but also, too, I, lo- I love actors' actors. I really love getting actors who other actors admire and who are seen as um, top shelf, I suppose. And, and, and Jeffrey back then, you know, of course, he'd won an Oscar for his performance in Shine and Philip had won his for Capote. And But look, also, too, I, I'm not so much obsessed with the actor's star power um, and I really don't like having the actor's names at the beginning of my films. I really want them to be sort of invisible and... and <laughs> And not let their star star power over overshine the actual plasticine blobs. So, um, I, but I do I do like actors who, you know, put the craft first, who really um, want to deliver the best possible performance. And Jeffrey Rush is certainly uh, one of those actors. Uh, and Barry Humphreys too. Look, I think Barry, I. I, I just loved his um, risky humour, which, of course, today is probably seen by many as politically incorrect. But I love the blend of comedy and tragedy, humour, pathos. And a lot of his lesser-known characters, uh, particularly Sandy Stone, um, I just I love melancholy. I have to be honest. It's, it's that beautiful happiness of being sad. I think Victor Hugo said that, the happiness of being sad. And, and that's really what I'm trying to do with my films. I'm not trying to depress the audience, uh, but I certainly do want to take them to dark places, and I do. You know, my real my ambition is to make the audience weep if possible. Uh, I know that sounds a bit sadistic, but if they're not crying by the end of the film, I feel like I've failed as a as a storyteller. So, and of course, I mean, I love gags. I love I love making the audience laugh, and that's uh, you know, writing humour. I find a lot easier than writing pathos. And uh, so, yeah, it's getting a balance between the two, the light and the dark. And I love that expression, 
without the dark, the light has no meaning. So that's also an ambition is to is to sh- uh, show sequences that are dark. So then when the lighter moments come along, you are sort of relieved. You know, it's a bit like that's what laughter is. It's a release of tension, build up of tension. So I love playing around with all those elements. And I always say too that I want to push as, as many emotional buttons on my audience as possible. So by the end, of watching one of my films are a little bit uh, wrung out and <laughs> exhausted. And I certainly don't want them, you know, even if you, if you hate my films, that's fine. I, I'd rather you hate them than be indifferent or apathetic, you know. On a movie like Mary and Max, where you have so many literal moving pieces, how many people do you have actually animating your characters, like, over, I don't know, over a day, like how many people are actually there moving the figures and capturing them? Well, on Mary Max, it was the first film I'd made, first feature film, of course, but first film I'd made where I wasn't allowed to animate and I wasn't allowed to get my hands dirty. I was just the conductor of the orchestra or the uh, the ringmaster of the circus, as I would often say. And uh, we only had six animators. We had three men. Three Mary animators and three Max animators, but we we had probably I don't know twenty art department people building everything. I mean, in Australia, we we seem to be far more resourceful, and we often have to think laterally. And our crew wear multiple hats, so we we just don't have the budgets that that Hollywood has. And so Mary Mary and Max, the budget was about eight million US. And at the time, Coraline was being made uh, by the wonderful Henry Selick, yes, uh, and their budget was about eighty million. So they had ten times the budget we had. But yeah, look, uh, uh, there was a lot of love put into Mary and Max, and a lot of people worked way beyond their wage and fees. And it was the first sort of uh, film of its kind of that level in Australia. So. There was a lot of interest in the project and on, and the shoot was 57 weeks. So we did about two and a half minutes of animation per week, which is considered a lot. Um, we didn't really have many take twos or threes. Uh, it was in a big old warehouse that was sort of run down and wires exposed and <laughs> no heating or air conditioning. It was a, it was a very... Um, it was a stressful film to make, I have to admit. I was pretty exhausted by the end. Somebody, I remember Nick Park, who, who of course, responsible for all the Wallace and Gromits and Chicken Run, etc. and he was interviewed once and somebody said, oh, what's it like to, to direct a stop-motion feature? And he said, oh, it's like being creative with a gun at your head. And I love that analogy. And I thought, well, what can I come up with something similar? So... I remember when Mary and Max got opened at Sundance, one of the uh, journalists asked me, what's it like to make a stop-motion feature? And I said, well, it's like making love and being stabbed to death at the same time. Because that's what it really felt like it was. You know, there were days I just wanted to run away and hide and not come back. But uh, we got there in the end. I'm very curious about the deleted scenes that are on the Blu-ray. Are those real or were you just taking the piss? (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, actually, some of them are, yes, are certainly uh, outtakes or, or scenes that didn't make it into the, the fine cut. Actually, I, from memory, one, old, one of the animators actually went behind my back and uh, shot a scene where Len, the, the man in the wheelchair, gets hit by a car as he crosses around it. <laughs> that, that was done behind my back as a bit of a joke. So a bit of a, I'd say, a, 
a bit of a blend. Of course, you know, it's a, it's a real shame these days that, that the DVDs are in the decline and you don't get to do all those sorts of things. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, no, the, uh, a mix, I'd say. And where did the idea of the color palettes come from? Because you you talked about how without dark there is no light, and there's so much dark in Marion Max, especially in Max's New York. I love his very black and white world and Mary's very mud puddle world. Well, at the time, I felt there was a lot of animation that was trying to cram every color of the rainbow into their their production design. And I sort of – I've always rebelled against other types of animation that seemed to be fashionable at the time. So originally I wanted Mary and Max to be a black and white film, similarly with Harvey Crump. But, but, of course, our investors have always said, no, 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 please, not black and white. It has to have some color. So it's always been this battle I've had, and Mary and Max, I won half the battle, so half the film is is black and white. But also, as time went on, I thought, well, really, colour, you know, it's a it's a it's a device, it's a way to to really enhance certain uh, moods, and um, I, I, and you can use colour in a symbolic way. And of course, you know, I, I, at the time I rewatched films like Schindler's List and looked at how Spielberg had used spot red as a, as a device. And of course, there's a whole lineage of filmmakers over the decades who've used spot color and, um, even far back at the, the, you know, The Wizard of Oz going from black and white to color back to black and white. So I knew I wanted to use color in a more, um, sophisticated way but then it also made sense that max's world you know new york in the 70s was a very gray city and it sort of suited max's psyche and his his loneliness and australia in the 70s was a very brown world for some reason in the 70s everyone was painting their houses brown choosing cream carpet uh, fake brown wood paneling. So brown was <laughs> the colour to go to back in the 70s, here in Australia anyway. But also, too, I wanted Mary's world to be very desaturated, very dehydrated, to, again, sort of um, be symbolic of her own loneliness and, you know, that her life lacked colour and friendship. And so that's how we sort of came up with these two colour palettes and then the idea of, uh, when they each sent each other uh, an object from their world, that that object would retain its colour when it went into the other world. So it was a very tricky film to colour grade. I must admit the, the colour grader <laughs> nearly um, lost their patience many times. But um, it worked in the end. And, you know, I, I was very worried that it was all going to be far too pretentious, but it ended up being one of the elements to the film that uh, critics and audiences seem to like. So... So, yeah, I'm glad we pursued it. Were there any things that you had to reconsider or think about when it came to setting a film in America, you being an Australian filmmaker? Were there any Australianisms that you had to watch out for? With all my screenplays, I I sort of am always uh, in a sort of uh, tug of war between trying to tell an Australian story but also tell a story that is universal, that people there, not just America, but people in Japan and Iran and uh, Spain, you know, a story that has archetypes and has a very universal tone to it, but trying to keep its Australianness about it. And so I spent a lot of time 
researching what things people outside of Australia understood about this country and far beyond just, you know, kangaroos bouncing down the street and, you know, th- just things that I knew. Well, okay, for example, a very famous Australian chocolate bar is a cherry ripe now. They are unique to Australia, but, of course, a chocolate bar is a chocolate bar. So, you know, I did spend a lot of time on every single word and, and I love my thesaurus and I'm always looking for words that have a universal feel to them. But strangely, the, the opening to Mary and Max, which is uh, all about Mary's world and the suburbs of Mount Waverley, we, we tried to make that very iconic and use a lot of uh, Australian images and koala bear letterboxes and football sitting in roof gutters and things. But strangely, when the film premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, a lot of a lot of Germans came up to me and said, oh, you really captured the a typical German suburb. <laughs> so I think we always underestimate how many elements of an Australian film audiences will understand. I think because we feel so far away from the rest of the world, we we, we feel that we even speak a different language, you know, and, and do, do, do people outside of Australia understand us? And there, look, there are a lot of Australian films which are really quirky and uh, often have subtitles uh, <laughs> because our, our accent is often hard to understand, a bit like a thick Irish accent. So, yeah, look, I'm very mindful of, of making sure most of what is delivered to an international audience is understood, but I know that the audiences aren't going to get every part of the, of the story, um, which is fine as long as they get most of it. You talked about how Mary is very close to you, and I'm curious in what ways is she like you or are you like her? Well, Mary is also my mother's middle name, um, and yeah, certainly a lot of aspects to Mary's childhood uh, are directly taken from my own. So I, I was bullied as a child. Um, I did feel misunderstood and, and uh, you know, I, I did collect, well, not noblets, but I collect Smurfs. And uh, I, you know, I found creating these little worlds in my bedroom was a great way for me to feel less lonely. I mean, this all sounds terribly pitiful and tragic, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, the, Mary's personality is very similar to my own uh, and that she really yearned. To, to have a friend and uh, of course life imitating art I then then did get a real pen pal in, in America um, you know my mother is certainly not Vera Dinkle but Vera, Vera is based on an auntie I have uh, my father is called Noel but he wasn't killed by a tidal wave and he didn't work in a teabag factory attaching strings to teabags but then again, he, he was an acrobatic clown, so other films, uh, actually my new feature, it does explore my father's life as an acrobatic clown a little more. So there are certainly elements of all my characters which are based on uh, on real people. I'd, I'd say there's very few characters in any of my films which are totally fictitious. They, they, they all certainly are stem from a real person's life. Well, and then you even get to inject yourself into there as far as like voice work. I'm curious, how many voices did you do inside of Mary and Max? Well, I, I did a lot of the voices for Mary and Max mainly because uh, of budget restraints. And I knew that a lot of these voices were just one or two words and that uh, I might as well do them myself. And so 
<laughs> I really was reliant on my sound design to make sure that they're up to scratch and that I wasn't overacting or underacting. So a lot of them didn't make the cut, but um, I'm glad to say most did. I, I think I'm, like most stop-motion animators, a bit of a control freak and a megalomaniac and... I know with my very first student film, Uncle, I, I wanted to do the narration as well as the animation, as well as the editing, as well as all the sound design. But I learned very early on that um, that acting wasn't my uh, one of my strengths and that really as a director it's it's learning to let go of certain roles and bringing in people who are far more experienced <laughs> than you are. I think if this all failed and my career as a filmmaker ended and I couldn't become a cake de- decorator, I might uh, pursue a career as an actor, although I'm probably far too fat, bald and ugly now to do that. So, <laughs> Hey, Matt Lucas has a career. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, look, my brother's an actor and and he and I have always joked that, you know, I'm lucky I can, it doesn't matter what I look like or how how overweight I become, um, I'm behind the camera and he, he, poor old, poor old Luke, my brother, he has to always keep fit and and look after himself and, uh, (laughs) but I look, I think now that I'm almost 50, I'm much happier to be behind the camera, that's for sure. When it comes to people doing voiceover work, how much of a director are you versus just letting them do the work and maybe toning them down or pushing them up a little bit? When it comes to directing my actors, I I think the first thing I always say to them is, please don't see this as a cartoon. Please don't give me a performance that's cartoony or over the top. I'm really about... Uh, a very um, believable performance, a very uh, restrained performance. And if anything, I, I know particularly with my narrators, I don't want them to put on a voice and I don't want them to act. And actors hate you telling them, please don't act. I just I just want you to be yourself. <laughs> and they don't want to be themselves. They, they want to be somebody else. They want to pretend. But they soon realise that, it, it you know, these my films, for them to work, uh, the voices have to be very serious and, and, and not, not monotone but sort of deadpan at times and, and honest and pure and authentic. And, and that's, that's really difficult to get at times because especially for voice actors who often don't know what their character looks like, they, they haven't spent the thousands of hours that the animators have spent creating these characters and bringing them to life. So they often feel a step removed from the actual character. But, it look, it, it's a, the, the, I do a lot of takes as well, I must admit, and I often don't get a lot of time with the actors. They're very expensive, of course, but I try and cram as many uh, takes as possible because, you know, with the animation we don't get to do many takes, whereas with rec- recording voices we can. So, yeah, and I often say to my narrators, Look, just pretend it's about two in the morning, you and I are sitting at a bar and you're telling me about this uncle of yours or this this, met, this man you met called Harvey Crumpets. Just tell me in a very matter-of-fact way about this person and, and this their life. And the emotion comes seems to come from the, the more restrained the actor's performance is, the more emotion seems to exude from that performance. Um, and I certainly... 
I really struggle with sentiment and, and saccharine deliveries. I really I don't like my films getting too sentimental and I don't like the it to become too sugary and particularly with music. I don't want the music to become too uh, heavy, you know. I think it's because I've seen one too many Disney films, and I <laughs> kind of railed against that type of um, sentimentality, and particularly with cuteness. I, you know, I really a lot of I, I really struggle even now when people say, "Oh, well, that character in the film I found really cute," and I say, "Really? I hate cute." So. I know I, my first film, Uncle, there was a chihuahua and the other students said, oh, it's such a cute little character. And I quickly realized, no, that that character has to die as soon as possible. Oh, I I kill cuteness. If a character is becoming too cute, it has to die eventually. And that's why a lot of characters in my films die. It's not because I wrote the plot that way or the story that way. It's just they were getting a bit too um, sickening for me to, <laughs> to move on. Uh, so, yeah, so it is, it's important with the actors to make sure they don't get too too sentimental and soppy and, and that they really just pull it in. And, and I think, too, the Australian Australians tend to, to hide their emotions. Um, we are a little bit British in the way we sort of keep it all bottled up. Uh, and <laughs> there's something endearing, I suppose, about that, too. You mentioned music, and I do have to give you wild compliments on how great the mix of music is that you have inside of this film. Oh, thank you. Well, look, I, I, I often get asked about the, the musical choices uh, and the scores I choose for the films, and it's very simple. I, I, I love classical music. I love instrumental music, and uh, particularly with Mary and Max, most of the music came from my personal CD collection. Um, yeah, my first three films had no music. Harvey Crumpet had a little bit. Uh, but I've certainly embraced music now, and and my new film is going to have a lot of uh, original compositions by um, uh, Sydney composer. Um, and I, I, you know, I also love silence too. I love I love it when the music just disappears and there's just this void and vacuum. I love the stillness that comes with that and the the, the mood and tone that's created. So I, I try and get it. It is an eclectic mix of music. I'll have everything from Leroy Anderson and the Penguin Cafe right through to a bit of Respighi and Madame Butterfly. And so, you know, it's a real – I love choosing uh, the music. And often the, uh, the music comes first. It's the music I just happen to be listening to while I'm writing a scene. I think, oh, hang on. Oh, that, that version of Quesera by Pink Martini, I think that's going to work really well as a suicide scene. Why don't we – if we can get the rights to that. Of course, my producers, you know, tear their hair out when they when they come back to me and tell me how, you know, expensive some of these uh, <laughs> pieces are. So uh, that's always a battle. But, um, yeah, I, I, I get most of the pieces I want. A lot of it, too, is so old that uh, we, we don't even have stereo versions of it. So a lot of it is in mono, so the sound mixers have to do an incredible job to make a lot of the music um, sound dimensional and, in, in, you know, surround sound. So, yeah, yeah, I, but I, I, lo- I love the way music, too, can carry a film. I, fi- I love films like The Piano by Jane Campion, which is driven by the music. Even E.T., I rewatched E.T. a while back, and I realised, wow, it, the, the reason E.T. is such a wonderful film is it's actually because of the music. John Williams' score really just drives that whole film, and you, the, the, the E.T. without the music just wouldn't work, I don't think. Yeah, the first thing I think of when I think of E.T. is that, that theme that Williams wrote. 
Yeah, yeah, so evocative and, and moving, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your, your newest film that you're working on? Well, the new film is another feature. Uh, after Mary and Max, which was over 10 years ago, I sort of had a bit of a mental breakdown and, and lost my enthusiasm for filmmaking altogether. My producer and I went our separate ways and, uh, you know, I sort of got disconnected from Mary and Max. It started to do very well at film festivals and, and started winning all these prizes. But I, I sort of I was very proud of the film, but I sort of – for some reason, just lost my way, and uh, three or four years later, I, I ventured back into stop motion and made a little short called Ernie Biscuit, purely to sort of experiment with new types of clay and to get my mojo back. And then Mary Max just sort of kept kept going, and then someone in America wanted to uh, a guy called a guy called Bobby Cronin wanted to turn the film into a musical, and I said, really? And so he's been developing this musical, which is in its uh, early release stages now and and the film just kept going and I, I get just as many emails and inquiries about Mary Max now as I did 10 years ago so about four years ago I thought well I better make another film <laughs> I, better, I better make another feature what am I angry about what do I feel a sense of injustice about and and at the time my father had passed away and my mother uh, her hoarding really started. She's a hoarder and she uh, hoarding really started to increase and I became fascinated by hoarding and started to read a lot of books and, and started to speak to a lot of psychologists about why do people hoard. I'd been a hoarder myself um, and I, I love Oliver Sacks. I've read all of Oliver Sacks' books and, and I thought, I think my next film's going to be about my mother and I think it's going to be about a hoarder. And so that's what I've been doing for the last four or so years is writing these uh, screenplays and I've done multiple drafts and the script's now finished and I'm glad to say that we're almost there with the financing and, of course, COVID has slowed us down tremendously, but um, hopefully mid-year we'll start pre-production with a release date of 2023. Sounds years, <laughs> it sounds forever away. But, uh, yeah, I, I've, I really have got my enthusiasm back for stop motion and for filmmaking. And and I really, it's because of uh, people who've watched Mary Max and people who contact me and, and say, Adam, why, why aren't you making more films? Well, you should be making more films. And so I think I, I've always, unlike a lot of other filmmakers, my ego or lack of ego has gotten in the way. I, I, I know after we won the Oscar for Harvey Crumpet, I, I felt like a fraud for a long time. I sort of didn't believe that we'd won that big award. And, and look, I'm a pillow because, oh, Adam, you're so humble. But it's not it's not that I'm humble. It's just that, um, you know, I have so many other interests. I love reading. I love drawing and sculpting and, and filmmaking. Again, it's not something I ever had a burning ambition to do but I think now that I'm almost 50 and time's running out and I'm starting to feel my own mortality that oh I better I think it's time to make another film so <laughs> yeah. so yes uh, fingers crossed we'll, we'll be up and running in a few months well Adam thank you so much for your time this was such a pleasure talking with you Oh, thank you, Mike, and, and thank you to all your uh, listeners for uh, supporting people like myself and um, independent filmmaking is alive and well, and I, I, I do get asked a lot, you know, Adam, do you still call yourself an auteur? Is arthouse cinema alive and well? And I, I always answer with, well, look, 
it doesn't matter if it's a series, a short, or a feature. It's all about a good story, well told, and the world certainly needs, uh, uh, you know, more good stories. There's a lot of B-grade material out there. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, we're saturated with content. And I know as a viewer, I love watching films that are very well crafted and, and thought out and planned. And and it's about quality, not quantity. And, um, I, you know, as long as I leave behind a collection of films that um, uh, are well crafted, then then I'm happy. talking about mary and max and you mentioned the ardman stuff the ardman animation stuff is just yeah it's amazing it's funny i was looking around and seeing like moments that change animation history and things like um you know the monday at the museum and these kind of short films where i guess i kind of grew up on claymation you know seeing like the way that it could be used very artfully and then also the way that it was used for just mass entertainment. Gumby definitely had its run before I was a kid, but Gumby was still on TV when I was a kid. And that was pretty much my first exposure to, to claymation as an art form. But yeah, I love that we can use animation and claymation and just all of these different things in order to tell very adult stories. And even though, Unfortunately, here in the States, I don't know how it is for you over there in Australia, but here in the States, a lot of times it's just like, well, if it's animated, it's got to be for kids. And then people just like lose their fucking minds when they see adult things that are being told through animated stuff. I guess now that anime has kind of moved more into the mainstream, people might be getting over that. But for a lot of years, it was just if anything is animated, it immediately equaled children's entertainment. I know that if I were to get into this conversation with my son, Max, he would probably hit boiling point if anyone mentions the word Disney. Uh, he is not a fan of the Disney studios, and he knows he's gone through the whole history about how they put their stamp and they put a lot of other studios out of business back in uh, the 40s, I think. There was the Fleischer studio. And if you go if you go back like to those Warner Brothers cartoons, the Looney Tunes, they weren't for kids. I mean, kids it became kids fair for Saturday mornings, but they were they were very much adult. I mean, of course they they sort of they weren't going to have uh, images of chihuahuas fucking or anything like that, but a lot of that dialogue was so sharp and so clever and satirical. There are things which I watch nowadays on those, and I'm still absolutely wetting myself with laughter. You know, uh, the, the I think was it the the Rabbit of Seville um, is an absolute favourite of mine. So uh, I think that animation had long been an art form, but yes, because of Disney's dominance of the art form, that's probably what's put into a lot of people's minds it being very much for children, and in the Late 80s, I think. There was a cinema that we had here in Melbourne. I I know I've sent you some details about it in relation to the Blues Brothers screenings that they used to have, but it was called the Valhalla. And the Valhalla was like just 
it was a sacred place for uh, people, for film lovers to go to. Uh, they just all would have, like back at the time, they always used to have a lot of stuff that was just not showing at any of the mainstream cinemas or in the art house cinemas. They'd go just a you know, little bit left of the dial. They would have every year, that, well, they called it an animation festival, but it wasn't like a fest. It was like two hours of animated shorts that they had from around the world. And that's where Australians or certainly Melburnians got introduced to Wallace and Gromit. And we hadn't seen anything like that. But two hours of this was all showing animation as a non-children's art form. And I was thinking, wow, I wonder if there's anything more like this. It was couple of things that I wanted to mention in specific. Uh, there was one thing at the, the Valhalla Animated Film Festival. Uh, called, I, I think this is like made for MTV, something called Lupo the Butcher. I don't know. Have you seen this? Yeah, actually, I saw it. We used to have a program here of uh, Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation that would tour right. around. And I, for sure, Lupo was uh, in one of those early years. Those were where I first saw Milton and um, Beavis and Butthead before they showed up on MTV. Right, right. Well, I mean, Lupo the Butcher was not like any cartoon I'd ever seen. And I just actually sort of thinking back to the adult thing, there was Ralph Bakshi as well in the 70s, but, you know, but there was only one of his. And it was his, his stuff was still not setting America. Uh, or the animated world of flame. He was still maybe very much on the side, but undoubtedly, you know, the Simpsons was the big cultural touchstone that had people thinking of as animation that didn't have to necessarily be for kids. Uh, now I know that one of Max's favorite animators, but he doesn't work with claymation. Well, at least not much, but does it more with humans. So it's like, chopped up film, like maybe taking a, a shot at a time, so far as I can tell, is a guy called Jan Svankmeyer. Max absolutely adores him. And he was saying to me this week, hey, mention Jan Svankmeyer to Mike and make sure that you mention to him as a suggestion for Czech Temba. So um, you've been um, advised. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've seen uh, one of his films called uh, Conspirators of Pleasure, but Max also said that these other films like Little Otik, which I think is supposed to be like a variation of Pinocchio and another one called Alice, uh, he highly recommends. But they're not traditional animation and they're not claymation. It's just more chopped up live footage being done. But that is also a very valid form of animation. And this is rather my long rambling way of saying that I think that there are a lot of wonderful people doing things that are animated that are not meant for children having said that as well there's some animated stuff for even animation for children is i don't think what it was so children's films like as you may remember from when you were a kid were very much one type of thing but i think that nowadays the animated films and i know this from taking my own kids or my great nephew's to the movies is there's always got to be that one rude moment where the children think, Oh, I'm in on something. I'm seeing an adult moment because they use the word shit or they show somebody's bum or something like that. And, and yet that's still considered maybe children's animation. It, it, it just seems to be a thing that children's animation in the 21st century is not what children's animation was in the 1970s, 1980s. 
No, I can sit back and watch cartoons with Avery, who's now six years old, and I absolutely love so many of the jokes. I finally caught up with some Phineas and Ferb recently and was just floored by some of the references that they were making. It was great. There's another one. Oh, what was it? Not the Loud Family. I remember that as a band, but there was another one where it was a uh, a family and just they were making references to Apocalypse Now in the middle of this kid's cartoon. And I'm just like, this is fucking fantastic. And yeah, I, I, I can't remember when the first time I realized that children's entertainment wasn't necessarily children's entertainment. It might have been uh, watching Rocky and Bullwinkle and, you know, or to your point, Warner Brothers cartoons. I mean, there are so many things in Warner Brothers cartoons that I still don't know what they're referencing. And every once in a while, something will click and I'll be like, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Like when I found out about the long weekend, then that made the whole joke about Ray Milland at a bar selling his typewriter make a whole lot more sense. And the way that the guy says, Oh, you're changed, Mr. Milland. Gives him five little typewriters back, you know. Oh. <laughs> so, and it's like, okay, yeah, there are great jokes that are out there, and we forget that that's there. Like, I went to see a block of two hours worth of Bullwinkle cartoons when I was in college, hmm. and I loved Bullwinkle when I was growing up, but I did not realize just how adult the humor was, and was just roaring with laughter watching it, especially watching it with an audience was fantastic. Stupid stuff sometimes, things like, you know, this person was about to receive a very uh, notorious collar, and then the the football se- football player says, "I can't wear collars; my neck's too big." <laughs> 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 or, um, yeah, I think I told this story recently about the whole, the uh, you know, like finding out what the ruby out of Omar Khayyam is, and that they made a whole thing like just. God, they went all out to get to the punchline of a ruby yacht of Omar Khayyam. And uh, my God, just the lengths that they would go to to get to a joke. And then <laughs> as a seven-year-old, how am I supposed to know what the ob- uh, ruby yacht of Omar Khayyam is? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that it is my opinion, so I don't get my ass kicked, but uh, my opinion that Hanna-Barbera probably in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, I enjoyed the Flintstones as much as anyone. And I know that that was a, you know, well, a cartoon version of the honeymooners and all that. But uh, I, I think a lot of the other Hanna-Barbera cartoons, you know, maybe your, your Scooby-Doo's and the like were solidly aimed at you know, there's going to be no injects for the adults. There's going to be just Here's a here's a story for you kids, and, and I mean that's that's fine too. But it's such a wonderful thing that you know here we are now in the 21st century, and we can sort of find that well, animation can be for people across all age levels. It doesn't just have to be you know, us suffering through as uh, adults you know, sitting with a five year old something that is is brain numb. But I'm sure there's plenty of that going on. And look, if it's providing animators with work, then long may it rain. But I really do like the fact that, as you say, we have uh, options available to us now that we can enjoy that. I mean, I think I mentioned to you back when we were covering uh, The Fall, there was that 
clay animated moment in there that Max had told me about was based on the work of the Key Brothers. And I mean, that's very, very surrealistic, but oh man, it is so wonderful. I know I've told this story on the show before, but one of my few, if not only, dates in college, I took my date to see Alice, the Jan Svankmeyer film. There was no second date. Just as a bit of an aside, and you can take this out if you want, but there was a workmate of mine who went on a first date with uh, a woman to uh, uh, Once Were Warriors. Uh, they they did get married, but the marriage didn't last. That was my first exposure to Svankmeyer and really just blew the top off my head. I had no idea that something like that could exist and was just, yeah, um, I agree with Max. And yeah, I should definitely do some Svankmeyer on a check temper sometime because if not do the entire month dedicated to him, do a month dedicated to him, do a month uh, dedicated to Zeman, who used animation and live action and a lot of things. I mean, there was just so much creativity happening. Um, even, you know, Svankmeyer, um, he had his, uh, he and his wife had um, ties into Uri Hertz. Uh, I think Hertz and Svankmeyer went to school together. You can see early Svankmeyer stuff in Aldrich Lipsky's Dinner for Adele. He animates the plant in there, which is very much uh, like the plant in um, Audrey 2 in um, Little Shop of Horrors. So it's really remarkable. It's a great, great film. I should show it, show it some Friday night um, to the watch party crowd because, um, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It's a little creepy. And, yeah, it's, it's right up my alley when it comes to uh, what good Czech film is all about. Did you get a chance to see Ernie Biscuit? I saw Ernie Biscuit shortly after it came out um because as you may be aware uh, uh my good friend ben buckingham and who's also been on your show uh and i we did an interview with adam elliott as like a bonus interview for uh, the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema and at the time adam i think had just completed any biscuit and he allowed us the opportunity to watch it I know that I think he said that he had a, a much smaller budget to work with than he had with the previous films. And yet there's a beautiful expanse. We still, I love the opening segment of the film, how one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And you think, Oh wow, they're getting into the story straight away. But no, it takes two minutes where we see, I think an eye popping out of a statue that sits off this chain of events before we're actually introduced to the character of Ernie Biscuit, who stuffs animals for a living. So once again, there's that theme running back to Mary and Max. The story eventually goes to how he ends up in Australia once it changes his life. And there's so much covered in this 20 minute film, you know, a, a character like his, his, his uh, girlfriend as a, as a child gets taken away by the Nazis. Uh, so there's the, the World War II aspect, him emigrating to Australia in the 1960s. And that was certainly a big topic of discussion in the 1960s is a film called They're a Weird Mob, which takes things maybe a little bit. I don't think it's well regarded nowadays. Uh, and uh, what was the other film that we saw? Sunstruck. Uh, remember when we spoke about on the Wake and Fright episode, once again, about The Outsider. And that seems to be a big topic of Australian cinema, The Outsider and fitting in. Uh, so I love that he incorporates all these themes. The theme basically of all of Adam Elliott's films is about being an outsider and either trying to fit in or at least trying to live their life 
happily within themselves. And, and that's very much another theme in Ernie Biscuit. Um, yeah, a, a, a wonderful film. And I just look forward to seeing him do something new because I'm, I'm in love with everything he does. It sounds like from when I spoke with him, he almost wasn't able to do something new, um, that funding wasn't coming in for his latest work. But uh, I think it was the day before or maybe right before I spoke with him, the funding came in. So hopefully in, I think he said, what, 2022 or 2023, we'll see some new work from Adam. It, it took him, once I started animating, Mary and Max. And I don't think that I asked him how long it took in pre-prod, but when he started to animate, it took them, I think he said like 54 weeks to do the entire animation of Mary and Max. So that's without pre-production or post-production. It might've been in the commentary on the DVD or in an interview I heard, I can't remember, but he says it took three months alone to build the city of New York. Or was it, the, or maybe it was Matt Waverley. I can't remember, but it took a long time just to build that one set. And I mean, that's something that we saw, we were speaking so much about it being such a great story and about these characters and all that. But we hadn't sort of mentioned up to this point about the level of detail. I mean, cause now I'm contradicting myself because I said the, the story is so good that you focus on the characters and you focus on the story. You don't need to sort of say, wow, isn't that great? But just listening to him talk about it and then rewatching it this week, I'm thinking, my God, there is a lot of detail. There is so much in there. And it's a credit to him that he built this beautiful looking city that we could sort of get immersed in that world. And if it had just been a couple of characters and a table or, you know, a couple of paintings hanging on a wall, it would have looked fairly sparse. But once again, we would have ended up with a great story. But he could only get away with that with the four-minute films. If you go back to those, they're, they're very sparse. But I think he made those, while once again, while he was at the Victorian College of the Arts. But getting the budget meant that he could paint a... I don't know if you want to say it, realistic looking world, but a world that we could identify. They look like buildings and they were not small. Like I think if you look at some of the behind the features scenes in Mary and Max, you see that like some of the, those tall uh, New York skyscrapers are going like maybe two thirds of the way up your body. So these are not like little matchboxy type things that are in a in ensconced in a in a shoe box these are obviously not to scale obviously but it's it's done you know they, they gave themselves enough room to work with well kind of you see the one animator who's like i can barely reach these guys because the set is so big <laughs> where he's popping up <laughs> that's one of the things is that you eventually take these things for granted as you're watching the film. The film's 92 minutes long. This is not one of these like 70 minute animated films, you know, that I, I'm trying to remember what movie came out just a few years ago and you were just like, this movie's 70 minutes? I paid full price for this movie and it's 70 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you're not going to make me happy either way, right? Like, I complain about two and a half hour movies. I complain about 70 minute movies. This movie's the perfect length. It's 92 minutes. I love it. You know, and it tells this huge story, tells the lives of these two characters going back and forth between New York and Australia and you get to see, yeah, these skylines and all of these things. And if you're paying attention, 
you're like, oh, wow, that must have taken them forever to put together. And if you're not paying attention, you're just enjoying it for the story. So you can watch this many different ways. You can turn down the sound if you want and just sit here and watch and watch the visuals and watch how intricate these things are. Or you can turn up the sound and lose yourself inside of the story. There's many different levels to enjoy Mary and Max. There's one animated technique which I've always wondered like how he achieves this. And I don't remember if this is so much of a thing. Oh, actually, what is it? it would be a thing in Mary and Max. I was sort of thinking more from Ernie Biscuit. But you remember there's this moment in the film where Max's air conditioner falls out of the wall and it's falling past a building and then crushes a, a mime to death. And there's that great gag about uh, the judge letting off the manslaughter charge because there's no way how Max would want to kill a mime artist despite everyone else wanting to. Uh, but the the moment of the uh, air conditioner flying through the air and going down the building, I mean, you get to see that rush of air. And I wonder, how do they do that? That's maybe I shouldn't know. I don't want to know the magic, but there was also the bit in Ernie Biscuit at the beginning with the eye from the statue falling from the arm. It's one thing to have a character move their arms and their hands and their legs around and change facial expressions, but to see like an inanimate object falling through the air or even if it's going like horizontally across the screen. That's always fascinated me, and yeah, uh, just just another technical moment that I really appreciate. The one for me is because there are certain movements in the movie, and I tried to get Adam Adam to talk about this a little bit, but I I didn't want to push too hard when it came to this because I think there are moments in the movie it almost looks like puppetry because the movements are so smooth. There are just certain moments when a character will move and it's just like, my God, that doesn't even look like claymation because claymation, it can look perfect, but you still get a little, just a tiny little herky jerk to it. But there are moments in, in Marion Max where it's just like, oh my God, that is so smooth. How can you even do that? But there's one moment where it's not, claymated. Mary is crushed at a moment, not not physically crushed. She's emotionally crushed at a moment. And the camera kind of cranes up over things. And she was animated at the beginning. She stops. The camera goes up over her. The clouds come across. And then she looks up. And it's like there's a moment where, you know, just a few seconds where everything else is moving around her. But the Mary character herself is completely still. And that is so effective that this animated figure is no longer animated. Everything else is. The camera's moving, the clouds are moving, but then she finally looks up, you know, and like kind of, kind of gives us this, you know, con eye view of like the universe is crushing her. Now, is that the scene like towards the end with Kesarasa? Okay, you know, the, the other thing that sort of occurred to me, and this is probably the only time that I would compare Mary and Max to Wake and Fright, but that camera crane movement, the rest of the room goes dark, the light's shining on her, and as we get that overhead shot just as she's looking up, reminds me of the same thing where uh, the main character, I've forgotten his name, is 
playing the game, as they call it, the betting game. And he, he's looking up just as he realizes, oh, I'm fucked. I've lost all my money. And I, I'm not saying that Adam was directly inspired by that at all, but it's possible he surely would have seen that film. The feeling of despondency of the character in Wake and Fright, and it worked so well here as being that moment where Mary has hit her nadir. She's completely hit the bottom. She's despondent. And so I see that comparison between the two characters. I never thought I'd compare the two films, but there you go. That's my moment. One of the reasons why I laugh when the air conditioner falls out of the building I told you the first time I watched this, I watched it with my friend Jonathan. And when we were in college, we lived in the upper part of the, the house that we were in, two story house. And it, you know, heat rises. It was really super hot. And we found an air conditioner in the basement of the house that we were living in. We probably shouldn't have taken it out of the basement, but we did anyway. And we put it in the window of our, our front, front facing uh, room that we were in. It was the him, myself, and our friend Jeff. There was one day <laughs> where something was going on and John lifted up the window and thought that he could just like grab the air conditioner really quick. Like he was going to be quicker than gravity. Gravity won out and the air conditioner fell out. And thank God, it, like we had one of our housemates who was in love with his car, this Jeep. He even had a personalized license plate of Ms. Jeep. And so he used to, for whatever reason, park Ms. Jeep on the front lawn. And that air conditioning unit missed Ms. Jeep by like inches. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so when we got to that part of the movie, the first time we were watching it, John and I were cackling. Even though he had seen it, he then suddenly realized what was going on and was living the movie through me and our shared association of an air conditioner falling out of a high story window and almost crushing something that was loved. <laughs> well, well, that's it. I mean, we've got so many moments of identification in the history of cinema, but I never thought anyone would say, you know, the moment where an air conditioner falls out of a window, I can really identify with that. Bizarre. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ti piace questo tipo di musica? Sì, certo. Sono i dischi della mia giovinezza. Sentendoli divento molto triste o molto allegra, secondo i casi. Questo in particolare appartiene al periodo del mio primo marito. Sai, era un amore grandissimo. Non ricordo chi, ma qualcuno una volta ha detto che tutto ciò che è bello finisce presto. E temo proprio che sia vero, sai. Pierre ebbe un incidente. Aveva una grande passione per le auto. Pierre era... Era un uomo bellissimo. Però era un invasato. E... Si credeva addirittura immortale, penso. 
e invece non lo era. Quando nostra figlia venne al mondo, lui era già morto da quattro mesi. Non è stato facile per me. Ma ogni cosa è già scritta e destino, così oppure così. Ho dovuto sopportare. Vedi, cari, l'essere umano è cattivo, ma alla fine sopporta tutto. Tutto. L'essere umano è duro e brutale e non è affatto indispensabile. Non lo è affatto. L'uomo deve impararlo. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Morris. So, Morris, what is going on in your world, sir? I recorded a week ago, but it'll be up by the time this episode is up. The latest episode of uh, See Here, Bernie and I do an interview with a fellow called Com Ford. Com is the curator and the, uh, I guess, the initiator of a film festival originally based in London, spread throughout the UK, called Doc and Roll. And all they do is show music documentaries. But they go for a, a lot of films which are sort of left of centre. He's not necessarily interested in showing another film like The Last Waltz or anything like that. I mean, as wonderful as that is, but he's really interested in highlighting a, a lot of newer filmmakers who come up with some obscure topic or some unheralded artist up to this point because of covid he decided well what am i going to do to keep this active so he also started a vod service so if you go to the dock and roll website you can either book for whatever it they're going to be showing if they end up doing anything cinema wise in the next couple of months but there's also like a, currently about 40 45 films and he's planning on expanding a lot of really terrific looking music documentaries and as our friend Eric Peterson is always saying we're living in the golden age of music documentaries there's so much good stuff out there so we spoke about some of those movies but also got a bit of an insight of what it takes to run a film festival and my god I'm glad I don't think I will ever be doing something like that it seems like so much hard work uh but yeah anyway it was a, it was a good chat with him yeah i've been on the outside of film festivals before and uh i would never want to run one. Oh yeah yeah i i know that you've been involved with film festivals but uh more as like calling you up to run panels and the like yeah or uh be a judge and right which is perfect for me i get to sit on a couch drink lots of beer and just watch movies right oh this sounds like heaven for love that album which i'll be recording next week but should hopefully be up by the time this episode is up uh i've gone and invited a fellow called joe lavelle onto the show joe is a regular on a podcast that i listen to every week called all time top 10 uh joe's also a musician and songwriter and we discovered ourselves uh not only a common love of the monkeys but more 
to the point, a common love of Mike Nesmith, Post Monkeys, and the first national band. So we're going to be talking about Magnetic South, the first album from the first national band on the program, and probably a lot of references to Graham Parsons and Country Rock and the Birds and the Everly Brothers and whatnot and where country rock went to after this and hopefully not much talk about liquid paper and the like so well thank you so much morris for being on the show thanks everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you'll also find a link over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.